Psalm 133, if you have a Bible and have not yet turned there, would you do that? It's one of the shortest psalms, it's one of the shortest of the psalms of ascent. And yet it has a very important, very powerful message for us. Think about, I want to give you four words, and you think about, you, you've probably had uh, things like this on tests or whatever, where you're given choices, you know, four choices, and three of them are the same, and one of them is different, right? So I'm going to give you four words. One of them will stand out as being different from all the others, all right? And the words are pandemic, politics, protest, and peace. Um, which one of those doesn't fit with the others? Which one of those stands out as being far different from the others? Well, you don't have to be uh, the proverbial rocket scientist, right, to know that it's the word peace. Because when you put pandemic and politics and protest together, you get anything but peace. And that, unfortunately, is the case in our nation. But what about in the church? What is the condition of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? What are our attitudes towards one another? And how do we relate to one another during this time of controversy and conflict and, and great disagreements over so many issues? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul wrote this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he doesn't leave us in doubt about what that means, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He adds this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Lord, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, calls his church to maintain the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, long before the Apostle Paul penned those words, the psalmist wrote a psalm that was entirely to, devoted to this matter of unity among God's people. And that's what we turn to this morning as we look at Psalm 133. Follow along as I read. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, we could add, and sisters, right? It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This morning I want to address four points based on this psalm. Three of them coming directly out of the psalm and one in application 
from this psalm. The first is, in verse 1, we see the praise of unity. How the psalmist praises unity. In verse 2, in the first part of verse 3, we see pictures of unity. He gives us images that help us understand <coughs> the blessedness of unity. Thirdly, we see the power of unity. The last part of verse 3. And then I want to address the practice of unity. First of all, notice <coughs> the praise of unity. What does the psalmist say? He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You know, it's, it's, it's a real blessing when something is both good and pleasant. You know, there's some things that are good, but we don't necessarily think of them as pleasant. All right. This past week, I went to the dentist and had a cleaning of, of my teeth. The only thing that I like about getting a cleaning at the dentist's office is that for the next couple of days, my gums are so sore, I don't floss. All right. Um, but it's good. It's not pleasant, but it's good. But then there are some things that are pleasant, but not necessarily good. I used to love going to Jolly Pirate Donuts and just getting whatever I wanted for my breakfast. Get that big sugar spike and then, you know, an hour later you're starving. But anyway, that's pleasant to me. But it's not good. Now, it tastes good, but it's not good for me. So there are some things that are good but not pleasant, some things that are pleasant but not good. But the Lord says, unity is good, and it is pleasant. I don't think we need to be convinced of this, do we? Isn't it great to be in a, an organization, a family, a church, where there's unity? It's good, right? And it is pleasant. Have you ever been in a family where there's maybe not unity? Boy, it's not good or pleasant, is it? Have you ever been in a, a group of people at work, maybe, trying to hammer out some issue, some problem, and there's not unity? It's not good and it's not pleasant. Or what about a church? I referred a couple of weeks ago to, unfortunately, <coughs> some churches <coughs> are known for the disunity, especially when they gather together for business meetings, right? <coughs> it's not good, and it is not pleasant. <coughs> the Scripture says, unity, whenever brothers dwell together in unity, it is good, and it is pleasant. Retired pastor Lee Eklov several years ago shared this illustration. He wrote, Every three years, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship sponsors the Urbana Conference, a gathering that challenges university students to get involved in world evangelization. About 16,000 students from around the world attended the 2009 conference. After the main session each evening, students would leave the larger conference auditorium to meet in smaller groups for prayer and reflection. In one of the banquet halls, there was a small group comprised of Chinese students, another group of Taiwanese students, and another group of students from Hong Kong. 
Large dividers <coughs> stood between the three. These walls were important <coughs> because historically these three peoples have harbored bitterness and animosity toward one another. They felt it was best to pray and worship with each other, each with their own people. But as the Chinese students were praying one night, they told their leaders they wanted to invite the other groups to join them. When the Taiwanese students received the invitation, they prayed and sang a little while, and then they opened up the wall divider. It wasn't too much longer before the students from Hong Kong pulled back their divider, and some 80 students mingled together. In Christ, we are all one family, said one leader. And Christ breaks down political boundaries. Let me read that again. And Christ breaks down political boundaries. In Christ, we have the desire to make the first steps to connect. The Taiwanese students asked the students from China and Hong Kong to lead them in worship. The next night, they invited the Korean and Japanese groups to join them, nations which also had experienced fierce animosity. The leader told them, We are living out what we have learned this week in John. This is God with us. One girl from China said, It was a really moving time. This kind of thing would not happen in any other situation. That is a picture of unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the unity that the psalmist writes about here, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Then he gives us some pictures of unity, pictures that maybe don't immediately speak to us, but pictures that would have meant a good bit to the original readers. Notice what he says, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down in the collar of his robes. Whenever Aaron was chosen by God to be the high priest of Israel, the way that he was marked out was a special ceremony where there was oil, olive oil, that was poured on his head. And oil represented the Spirit of God. It represented the fact that God's Spirit was now on him, marking him out as the one who would represent God to the people and represent the people to God. He was the one, he would be the mediator between God and the people. He would be the one who would offer a sacrifice or sacrifices for the sins of the people to atone for them so that they could walk rightly before God. And he was anointed with oil, picturing God's blessing on him, God's choosing him out, pouring out the Spirit upon him. Now, what about the dew of Hermon? Hermon was the highest mountain in Israel. And Zion was where the, the temple was. It was in Jerusalem, but it was not nearly, it was a mountain, but it was not nearly as high as Hermon. And so the dew of Hermon would fall down upon the mountains of Zion. It would go from the highest to one of the lower elevations. These two images emphasize Two things in regard to unity, the unity of God's people. The first is that it comes from God. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4? We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create it, we maintain it. 
That's our responsibility. It is God who creates unity. It is God who has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between Chinese and Taiwanese and Hong Kong and Korea and Japan and all nations. He is the one who breaks down these boundaries, these walls. Unity is from the Lord. Likewise, it is God who sends the dew. It is God who sends the dew upon Hermon so that it can go down further upon Zion. It is God who is responsible for sending the rain and the sunshine, right? Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, causes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, right? So God is the one who gives unity. But secondly, there is the reminder that this is for all. It's for all of God's people. Aaron, the high priest, was anointed so that he could offer sacrifices first for himself, but also for the rest of the people. The blessing wasn't limited to just a few elites. It wasn't limited just to the clergy. It was for all of God's people. And the dew of Hermon didn't stay on Hermon, but it went down to the, to the mountains. One writer says this, The dew is for little Zion as well as great Hermon. When a country, a church, or even a family is at peace, it benefits not only the most prominent or most important persons, but also everyone. All are blessed, especially the small, the unimportant, and the weak. Likewise, disharmony hurts everyone. Unity is a gift from God. We're called to maintain it. And it's not just for a few. It's intended for all. In Ephesians 2, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to mark Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, actually the whole chapter, but especially verses 11 through 22, Paul writes about how God has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. If we think our political divisions are pretty contentious at times, they are nothing compared to the contentiousness, to the animosity between the Gentiles and the Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day. They hated each other. The Jews called Gentiles dogs, and the, the Gentiles, especially the Romans, they thought the, the Jews were despicable. I mean, they couldn't stand each other. And yet Paul writes that Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between the two so that all could be Those who were once far away, that is the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ on the cross. Why? So that in Christ, God could create one new humanity, all those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the psalmist addresses the power of unity. Notice the second part of verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, people who see this kind of unity, 
They want to know what causes it because that's not natural. That's not something that we can create on our own. We can try. You know, we can, years ago, decades ago, there was the idea for the League of Nations, you know, to create peace among all God's people. That didn't work. And then there was the United Nations. How united is our world today? Not very well. That's because we can't create that. We can't do that. Only God can do that. By sovereign decree, God orders His grace to be bestowed where His people live together in harmony. It's where true unity is found that God sends the fullness of the Holy Spirit along with the Spirit's power. And we see this demonstrated in the life of the first century church. In Acts chapter 2, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to look at Acts 6 as well. In Acts 2, in the early verses, Peter preaches a sermon. And towards the end, many people respond to that sermon. Peter stands up and preaches in the power of the Spirit which has come upon him. And then those who hear are convicted in their hearts. They repent and they put their trust in Christ. And 3,000 people come to Christ as a result of that. And here's what we read, beginning in verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, A picture of great unity there. These were people, they were all Jews, but they came from all different regions of the world at that time. And then verse 7, 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In no small part, the result of the unity that the Lord created there. And then we see that that unity is threatened We look over just a a few chapters, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the day of the distribution. The Hellenists were those who were more Greek-speaking. They were all Jews, but they weren't uh, Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking so much. They were Greek. They, they had lived, they had come from regions of the world at that time where they had assimilated and the common language was Greek. They were the Hellenists. But then they felt like their widows who were being taken care of by the church were being slighted. So a potential division came about. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Unity fractured, unity regained. The power of unity, the blessing that God pours out upon the church in multiplied disciples as a result of this unity. Again, another author, Philip Yancey, comments about the, on the observation of the miracle of unity in the midst of diversity in the church. He writes this, As I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who, who as a rabbi, had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled, marveled over the radical change. That was a common prayer of uh, rabbis in that day. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me, Yancey writes, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Yancey then adds this, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Right? Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants, and blue bloods can come together. He adds, just yesterday I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? The power of unity. That's where the Lord commands the blessing, life evermore. Well, how do we maintain this kind of unity? If it's been fractured, how do we regain it? I want to recommend four things that I think are necessary, essential to maintaining or regaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Four words, and they are identity, humility, liberty, and charity. First of all, identity. Notice what the psalmist writes in that first verse how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity we could easily add sisters that's the intent as well we need to remind ourselves we're part of the same family we are brothers and sisters in christ we need to remember that biblically we are related by blood not Natural blood, the blood of Christ that has been poured out to redeem us from our sins. We are related to every true believer in the Lord Jesus. We are part 
of the family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is writing to a divided church and appealing to the believers to live in agreement rather than in division, he addresses them as brothers. He does this repeatedly throughout his letters to the church at Corinth, but not just them, throughout his letters to all the churches. It is a subtle reminder of their identity in Christ that they are members of one another. They are members of God's family. We would do well to remember our primary identity. We are Christians. That is what unites us. As Christians, we are not first and foremost Republicans or Democrats or even Americans. We are not even first and foremost Baptists. That's important. I'm not saying it's not important. What I'm saying is that we are not first and foremost. We are first and foremost regenerate, born-again, blood-bought Christians. And every other person who trusts in the Lord Jesus as Savior is a brother or a sister. We are family. I won't sing the um, Sly and the Family Stone song. But anyway, we are family in Christ. The second is humility. Humility. There can be no unity without a good deal of humility among God's people. Again, I point you to Ephesians 4, that passage that I read early in the uh, sermon, in my introduction. Paul writes, I I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And again, our greatest example of humility is given to us in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, Philippians 2, just a few pages over from Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not even as significant, more significant than yourselves. How do you do that? In humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the creator of the universe, humbled himself, did not regard his equality with God, something that that he needed to hold on to to keep him from doing what was necessary in order for us to be reconciled to the Father. He considered, really, others, 
you and me as more significant than himself. What does it say to us? Mark down a couple other passages we're not going to read. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. And 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Both of these, again, are exhortations to humility. That's Colossians 3, 12 through 14, and 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Let me just say, part of humility is the acknowledgement that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, we all see in a mirror dimly, right? We don't have all knowledge. Someday, we're going to see, we're going to be, we're going to know as we are known. But until then, our knowledge is limited. I might be wrong. Let's all repeat that. Can, can you do that? Are you willing to do that? I might be wrong. All right. Now, I mean that for you, not for me, okay? I am number one who needs to remember that. I recently had a conversation with someone, and we were kind of bemoaning the current lack of ability to have civil discourse in our nation. Have you noticed that? It's almost impossible to disagree agreeably, right? And so we were, we were talking about that, how over a number of issues, moral issues, political issues, and so on and so forth, you know, it just is really difficult, if not impossible, to have a civil conversation. And this person agreed and began to lament the situation, but, but then this person the way they were talking and what they were saying, it became pretty clear to me that in this person's mind, the fault was that for that was on the other side. The people who disagreed with them. I mean, they're the problem. I can't be wrong. Right? We need, that's not humility. We need to be willing to admit. I'm not talking about clear-cut Biblical truth issues. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the application of issues. The application of truth. How we see certain things. And that leads me to the third requirement for unity. And that is liberty. The Apostle Paul wrote a whole chapter on this. In Romans 14, Paul addresses some issues that Christians disagreed on. And evidently, there was disunity over some of this. Paul writes this. I'm not going to read it all. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Ooh, write that on your heart. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
He goes on to other issues. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you, why do you, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'd like to read the rest, but I'm not going to because of time. But you read the rest of that chapter. The point here is that there are issues that we will and can disagree on and still realize we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are essentials. Some of you know the, the old saying that's been passed down through church history attributed variously to different people. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And we're going to get to that point in a minute. But in non-essentials, well, what are non-essentials? Well, let me just say the essentials are Matters regarding the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the Trinity, the nature of the Word of God. How can we be right with God? What is salvation? What is the gospel, the good news? Those are essentials. Let me give you something that's not essential. Again, that doesn't mean it's not important. Baptism. All right? I have brothers and sisters in Christ who believe and practice infant baptism. All right? But I don't doubt their salvation. Why? Because they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not because of how they're baptized or when they're baptized. We believe in believer's baptism. The difference is what we call paedo-baptism or credo-baptism. That is, baptism of infants or baptism of those who profess faith in Christ, who understand what that means, all right? That's important. It's not essential to our fellowship with others. Now, someone who denies the deity of Christ, that's essential, all right? I can't have fellowship with that person. I can have a conversation, and I hope I'll have a conversation that's winsome, that's loving, that's gracious, we're not going to have fellowship in the same way that I have fellowship with you. Or fellowship even with someone who has a different opinion on baptism. There are other issues. The Lord's Supper, all right? The meaning of the Lord's Supper is another one. There are other things on which we can have different opinions. Do you know what the word eschatology refers to? The end times, right? We believe, and essential is believing that Jesus is coming again. That as He ascended to heaven, He will come again. What is not essential is, are you a pre-tribulational rapturist, a mid-tribulational rapturist, a post-tribulational rapturist, or, or whether even you're pre-trib, or post-trib, or odd-trib, or just, I mean, 
pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, or pan-millennial, right? My point is this. In some issues, some doctrinal issues, we need to allow liberty to those who disagree with us. Can I say that's true politically as well? That's true about your attitudes towards the pandemic or spamdemic, as some people call it. Uh, your, ish, your opinions and attitudes about wearing masks or a whole host of things. We need to allow one another liberty, right? The test of who a true Christian is, is, is he or she trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation from sin. Not whether or not he or she agrees with my political opinions. Even who I should vote for for president. The fourth word is charity. Charity. I probably lost some of you on that last statement. But anyway, charity. The vernacular, the common word is love, right? Charity, though, is what is the old King James word for love. And when we read 1 Corinthians 13, it gives us a beautiful description of what that looks like. Actually, now you need to understand, Paul was writing to people who had some pretty strong disagreements over some things, especially spiritual gifts, but other things as well. There was a lack of unity, and so Paul writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrong, at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Let me just say that this is true not just in our interactions with other people face-to-face. -face. It's true about social media too, folks. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Behold, how good. And pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down in the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down in the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life 
ever more. British writer and literary critic G.K. Chesterton was once asked to contribute to a series in the London Times newspaper on the question, what is the problem in, in the universe? He answered, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The answer to the question, what is the problem that causes disunity in the church, is more often than not, I am. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. It indeed is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, Lord. It is breathed out by you and it instructs us, rebukes us, corrects us, and trains us in righteousness that the people of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, help us again to be not only hearers but doers. In Jesus' name, amen.